Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachna. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Hello and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Tuesday, January 20th, January 10th, 2023. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that website and click on the words Start Here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again?, And that chapter of the book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for almost or for over 18 years to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you would like, and use it over and over and over again, absolutely free. You can also download an app from the App Store if you go there and type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. Before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you choose to tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process, and it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. We hope people do all of that soon and often primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives when they um, apply these tools in their lives, and secondarily because it tends to lead people to have comments, questions, answers, or testimonials. And if you have any of those to offer us, you can call us live at 563-999-3581. 
And if you call that number and press 1, it'll put the little icon of a hand by your phone number. I can turn on the microphone and announce you by your area code. And we appreciate when people do that because it makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work. Our intention with this work is to be a service. And if you let us know how these things are landing for you and what might be of most service to you, that makes it easier for us to to fit into that program for you, to help you. And um, we have... Two people last couple of days have called in and done worksheets or reported on the worksheets that they've done. And uh, we're grateful for that every time that happens. And we also have um, the reading of the Way of Mastery or reviewing the final lesson in the Way of Mastery, which is Lesson 35, which is the final lesson in the Way of Knowing. And... Um, as usual, I'd be happy to entertain comments or questions, answers or testimonials prior to um, reading a little bit more of the Way of Mastery and finishing the review of or continuing the review. I don't think we'll get it finished today of that lesson. Um The other thing I should mention is that if you're not live, if you're listening through the archives and you would like to interact with us, you can send us an email. You can email me at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org or you can email genie at j-e-a-n-i-e at yagain.org. That's W-H-Y-A-G. A-I-N dot O-R-G. And if you do that, we will address your comment or question or answer or testimonial on the show. And then as time allows, we will send you an email back letting you know what day and time we addressed your email, and you can listen to the comments through the archives. The archives remain another powerful tool. Michael and Jeannie are both have misspoken recently and talked about how we're ending our 11th year and about to start our 12th year, but that's the reverse. We have just, at the end of this month, we will complete 12 years of doing the Internet show five hours a day, or five days a week, one hour a day for the first eight years. And for the last almost four, it's been two hours a day, five days a week. So along with the Internet show, Michael and Jeannie maintain their website. There are some wonderful videos that Jeannie has just completed about how to get the most use out of the website, how to get the most use out of the app. And those are available at whyagain.org, W-H-Y-A-G-A-I-N.org. Another resource we provide is the support groups. Tuesday and Thursday nights, so Tuesday night, there will be another support group tonight. All the information you would need to join or pass the information along to somebody you think might benefit is available on the mindshiftersacademy.org website. 
And we just like to remind people that there's a separate page for the information to log in for Tuesdays and Thursdays. And two separate forms of login information. So, again, call in number is 563-999-3581. Feel free to give us a call and let us know how we can support you. As area code 610, is this Susan? Hi, Dr. Tim. Yeah. Welcome. Um, thanks. Welcome to you, too. Um, <clears throat> this is a sort of a strange testimonial, but I have been using the Pradervand blessing practice, as you know, and I've got this rash on my body, which I've tried to do a worksheet on. <clears throat> it didn't go anywhere, and I don't know whether it's appropriate to do a worksheet on it, but I feel as if by practicing the art of blessing, including blessing the rash, which turns out to be possibly a post-COVID uh, something. Uh, I had COVID about six weeks ago, and the dermatologist said, I've seen this before, and it'll go away in about six months. There's nothing much you can do about it except put on a steroid cream if you want. I recommend it. But my my old thoughts are right there, but they feel as if they have knock on wood, and I hesitate even to say all this because this is so new. I feel as if the punch of all my negative types of thinking, fear of death, fear of suffering before death, all that has been hugely reduced, maybe even eliminated because of practicing the art of blessing. Uh, it's as if Pradervan has given me a track on which I can put my wheels. And I can come off the track, but I know the track's there, and I can re be reminded immediately if something doesn't feel very good to get on the track again. And I've had a number of little incidents in life which invite derailment. And I could go into those because they all sort of, they're the same sort of thing. But all I have to do is remember to bless whatever it is, the present experience, be curious, allow. Um, it's been a quite a wonderful time even to have this rash, which isn't very bothersome, except at night I feel as if settling into bed, suddenly my body turns into a blowtorch, and I feel as if I've got to <laughs> scratch and scratch and scratch. But um, I did try to do a worksheet on it, but all it ended up with being is, why am I so joyful, even though I have this rash? And I realized it's because the end of the worksheet, which is to get an enlightened goal, is to get on the track and the, Prater the Pratervand track. And I wonder if I could read a little intro to one of his chapters, which pretty much summarizes what this has felt like. Is that okay? Because I know you're, you're, yeah, you're yeah, doing great. 
Okay. <clears throat> this is the beginning of Chapter 9. The chapter is called The Deeper Meaning of the Art of Blessing. And he says, to bless means to wish unconditionally and from the deepest chamber of your heart. Unrestricted good for others and events. It means to hallow, to hold in reverence, to behold with awe that which is always a gift, always a gift from the creator. He who is hallowed by your blessing is set aside, consecrated, holy, and whole. To bless is to invoke divine care upon, to speak or think gratefully for, to confer happiness upon, although we ourselves are never the bestower, but simply the joyful witness of life's abundance. I just think that's the most gorgeous thing And it can be done not by will because I still have the same reactions and feelings, instant, you know, inanimate object problems, for instance, or someone who isn't meeting a goal that I didn't even know I set. For instance, the man who's living in our house with us, um, I'm constantly letting go of goals that I've set for him. I could name 10. You know, I have plans. I have ways to help him out. I have plans for getting him on his feet, to get his car fixed, to get a job. All of this I'm constantly having to let go of. But underneath that is the track. It feels as if the track has been set below the surface of my usual type of thinking. And I think we all have access to that. And it's not, it's not the result of hard work or anything. It's like stepping into grace or something. So I guess I can stop talking right there. I don't know what else to say, but I'm just so happy to have the Prattervan book tool to add to the tools that you've been teaching. Well, glad to hear it. And it sounds like that track that you talk about that's underneath all of this stuff, it sounds like that's another way to talk about the Tao, the path, the way. Wow, that's a gorgeous idea. Wow. You know, years ago I had... Go ahead. I was going to say years ago I had a dream that was like a vision and it was a gift. I hadn't earned it or anything. And I had three days of, I've mentioned this before, three days of feeling that everything was utterly beautiful, beloved, and it was a, a, a state of total really deep happiness or bliss for three days and then it gradually wore off and I've often thought I want that back I want that back well I feel as if that is being given back to me in a way that I can have some say in some control over I I hesitate to say all this because who knows what will happen tomorrow or anything but um, it's great to have a way to find that state again 
Well, it is. Um, it, it kind of feels like the the dancing wire that Lesson Thirty Five was talking about when we left off reading yesterday. If we can just get ourselves to tap into the willingness, the allowance, the surrender, the blessing, the gratitude for the flow of life, whatever it is, however it unfolds, then we become mm. that wire, that live wire, and the energy starts flowing through us more. And then there's the possibility that we can interact more in this synergistic, creative way that no one could ever have predicted with another live wire or all of the other live wires of life. Mm. Do you remember that segment from yesterday's reading? I don't. I don't know why. Okay, so, so, here is, so, here is, well, so here it is. In, in, in the last um, three paragraphs I read before I stopped yesterday, it says, in the way of knowing. Well, just to back up just a little bit, it said, the secret then is to approach every day with this, I surrender all thought of what I know and have believed. I rest in gratitude to the one who has birthed me. I ask that it be revealed to me only this, greater truth, greater wisdom, greater capacity to know and extend perfect love, perfect trust, and perfect peace. And then it says, in the way of knowing we come to the great culmination. And that culmination is that you are indeed as I am. That in each moment of your soul's journey, you have literally created the worlds of your experience, just as I did when I walked upon your plane, just as I continue to do now. How then has it occurred that this form of communication could take place? This form of communication meaning the way of mastery, the book that I'm reading from. It is not so much that I cleverly set up a labyrinth of doorways to draw you to this teaching so that I could connect with you. But rather, I simply rested in my desire to extend the atonement. By creating that desire, I began to create a vibrational field emanating from my mind, capital M mind, out through the creation, that vibration alone is not enough. But where it resonated with the deepest desire of my brother, J.M., to know the Christ mind, to find a way to serve, to indeed heal and awaken from the last trances, traces of illusion, when that happened, a connection was formed. It was like two wires dancing about. The dance caused the movement of energy through them until their energy touches, joining the tips of the wires together. And then this communication comes into being. J.M. starts channeling this work. Wow. You know, the more you use the gentle art of blessing, 
the more you use the gentle art of blessing, the more you get comfortable with whatever your experience is, even though it's this rash, the more you bless all of creation and bless yourself and bless the rash, the more you move to the place where you feel like you might access that that state of awareness and gratitude you had years ago, where for three days everything was beautiful. You're lighting up. You're allowing the energy. You're removing the constrictions and contractions and judgments. Just think about how what would have it been like six or eight years ago if somebody said to you and you had a rash, you know what, you should just bless it. You would have thought, you would have thought they were crazy. and yet now you're saying not only is it transforming your experience of the rash but you feel as though it's put you back on track that there's a track running underneath all of this and you're back on it Mm. that's true and once you're on the track things that look bad and I you know, this isn't so bad, so this isn't a, a, a global statement. But as far as the rash goes, I just look at it and I think, I have thoughts like, well, is this the way I'm going to exit my body and exit the planet? How interesting. <laughs> or I'm curious about what this is. And they don't know for sure. Of course, that's the other side of it. But the fear has gone. It's just being interested. That's well, that's there. the other thing I was going to point you to, that you, you've already said, you've given in your testimonial, that this ongoing, years-long fear about death and dying and into the horrors of death and suffering through the death process, you feel like it's lifted. Well, yeah. many would say that's yeah. miraculous. I think so. Right, but that's just that you know what what what's a miracle except for from the course in miracles a shift from the focus on fear over to love. What's a miracle in some other writings? It's something that has always been that we were unaware of, and we in, we open our awareness to something that we hadn't that we'd previously been unaware of. But this this power to change, this this flow of creative energy, this ability to see everything through the gratitude filter, it's always been there. We haven't been engaging it. Yep. But that's but why of Course in Miracles says things like real. there's no order of of difficulty to miracles. Right. And it doesn't happen by will. Right. It happens At least through not not directly. Right, it happens through this flow of energy when we accept the flow of energy. When we release judgments, when we move into allowance and surrender and trusting and blessing and whatever unfolds, then the we get introduced to... Go ahead, the weird thing is what? The judgments are all still there. I don't think I've changed that much in what... You know, I what will get under my skin and all my hackles will go up, and then I, but I can just step away from it, and maybe there it in is. stepping away, there it is, yeah, there it is. When you step away from it, you're withdrawing the value you put on it. To use the way of mastery's terms, 
Mm-hmm. You know, it says it says in lesson three. Listen, it doesn't mean you won't get angry, mm-hmm. right? It, okay. it doesn't mean you won't get angry. It just it just means stop fooling yourself into thinking your anger is justified. Mm-hmm. So over and over again, in in these last lessons of transformation, it was asking us to really evaluate what have we given our value to. What have we decided to argue for? Mm-hmm. And question it deeply and then simply withdraw the value we place on those negative thoughts. How do you teach only love? You share only your loving thoughts. It doesn't mean you don't have access to these other thoughts. The bitterness, mm-hmm. the judgment, the anger, the hurt, the grief, they flow through your mind because your mind is just this field of energy. Mm-hmm. Right? But what are you going to share with others? What are you going to pour your mind energy into? What are you going to value? That's what makes the shift. Michael Rice has this thing where he talks about people who come to his seminars and they'd say, well, you know, I know you're wrong about this because I pray every morning and every night for abundance and I'm still suffering and I still have lack. Yeah. And Michael says, okay, so let's take a look at that. Tell me about your day. Well, he says, well, every morning I get up and I meditate for 20 minutes and I just pray for abundance and pray for all this. And then at night, 20 minutes, I pray for this and that. And Michael says, okay, and so what do you do with the rest of your day? He goes, well, I mean, there's so little and I've got all these kids and bills and so I've got three jobs and just running here and there. And, there's never... <laughs> and the guy gets all revved up and he's got all this intense emotion. And Michael says, okay, now, which prayer do you think carries more energy and weight? The quiet, mm. meditative uh, 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes night, or all of this huffing and puffing you're doing here with all of this energy of resistance and tension and frustration and sadness and bitterness and resentment. <laughs> and, and 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 your your chooser isn't your conscious logical mind. Your chooser your chooser mm-hmm. is your heart energy. Your chooser is the mm-hmm. unconscious that runs and, and estimates are that it's well over a million times more powerful. The processing that our mind does that we push out of our consciousness than what we're able to track with our quote nine bit mind. So what you've done is you've chosen, even though those thoughts come up and you have those knee-jerk responses, to shift away from them, to step away from them, to let them go, to see them as silly or harmless and move into blessing. As you just read from Pierre Pratervan's chapter, what do you say, chapter 9? Yeah. Chapter 9 from, is that the gentle art of blessing? Yes. It's okay. the little italic blurby thing before he starts the chapter. If you right. remember how he formatted his book. Yeah. Yep. I just wanted to clarify was that book or the three hundred and sixty five blessings to heal myself right. in the world. So it's it's the right. it's the gentle art of blessing book preamble for the it chapter is. nine. Yeah. Well, I can't thank you enough for that powerful testimonial. I'm glad that you're having that experience and I hold for you that it unfolds and blesses you ever more the more you bless everything else. Thanks. Thanks, Dr. Kim.
Anything else you that know, we can... Great. Go ahead. Well, if there's nobody else on the line, I wanted to ask a question. I listened to this Greg Braden um, video, I saw it ages ago now, where he says that the, and you said this too, that the there's there are brain the, our brain there's a large brain in our heart that our heart actually is a brain and we can connect the brain to the heart and you gave a meditation very simple two or three minutes you breathe in for four and count out push out the breath for five and he said this will connect the heart with the brain and this is a physical practice. I kept trying to do it. I guess what I'm going to say is I never could really do it that way, but here Pradervan's practice of blessing, we're forced into our heart. As soon as we've said, we, and we don't need to feel anything. I don't, often I don't want to bless the person or I'm mad at them or I think I have to fix them. But it's a tremendous relief to find out we don't have to fix anything. And somehow going into that intention of blessing someone puts the energy into the heart. I'm not sure about how the mechanics of that work, but I wondered if you saw that video. Yes, I believe you're talking about the one where where he he has the, the beautiful graphics that show the certain cells in the heart near the top of the heart. And um, it ends up, um, he basically gives a very brief summary of um, heart math and how to do the heart math procedure. And that's what he's talking about there. Mm-hmm. <coughs> yeah. And it's, it's a, I've, I've forwarded it to a number of people. I think it's a wonderful video because it, it helps us conceptualize what the the biology has now discovered the biologists and the physiologists have discovered that there are these brain-like cells on the heart and that they are where the signals originate from the heart to the brain and you know 90 some percent of the signals that go between the brain and the heart go from the heart to the brain it's the mm-hmm. opposite of what our science would have predicted and heart mass figured that out back in the 90s, and they've been doing continuing research on it. And they've even developed this device that you can clip on your ear and plug in your iPhone, et cetera, and do the breathing according to the the rate of expansion of this wheel that you, you look at. And when it gets bigger, you breathe in, and as it contracts, you breathe out. And, and you try and think these positive thoughts, these gratitude-based thoughts, and visualize them going out through the tip of your heart. And what what you do is what they they call you bring the heart and the mind into alignment, into coherence, into the frequency resonance, which is the same as the f- vibration of the earth. I think it's like point wow. one kilohertz or something. That? Yes, I, I've I've done the heart math. Um, I've had the, the device. I've had it on my phone. I've, you know, I had one. Um, that, that clicked into the iPhone years ago, and um, then my son got an iPhone, and he had some stress going, so I gave it to him. And then I thought, well, I'll replace it, and I'll get the one that, that goes into the laptop, and and, um, and it never worked quite as well for me. Um, 
Mm. Because I, I would feel that I'm getting deeply relaxed and the one that went into the app or on the uh, laptop would never coincide with what I was feeling. Whereas the one oh, that wow. was in the iPhone, um, we, I felt good and it would say, oh yeah, you're right in, in, in coherence. And so, you know, it doesn't matter. You don't really need the outside device. You just, mm-hmm. you, you have found a way to do it. I would be willing to bet that when you're in that blessing state and then one of your negative thoughts comes up and you just step away from it, I'd be willing to bet you, you move into coherence at that time. When you're feeling like the track is revealed and you're back on track, I would be willing to bet you're more in coherence at that time. Hmm. Interesting. So that's been around for a while, that app. Hmm? Since the 90s. Oh, wow. I think it was the the mid-90s when they discovered these things. And, And they've been doing the research on it ever since. And you can learn more about it. You just look up heart math, H-E-A-R-T-M-A-T-H. Mm-hmm. Thanks. That's fun. Okay, Dr. Tim. Well, thanks a lot. You're entirely welcome and far more deserving than you yet know, even though you're getting closer. Mm-hmm. You're starting to feel it, and and that's what we wish for everyone. So I will mute you so you can listen in, and I will invite anybody else to raise a hand before we move back to the reading of The Way of Mastery, Lesson 35, as we're, we begun yesterday in the last part of the show to, uh, to read a summary, to review. Yesterday in the first part of the show, it was um, Celinda working through a worksheet. Bless her heart, that was quite a gift to us all, and... Then in the last bit of the show, we started reviewing Lesson 25, and we read the better part of the first two pages. In Lesson 35 in the Way of Mastery, or Lesson 11 in the Way of Knowing, the text reads, this process, and it's the one that I was referring to earlier in the show, where Yeshua, the consciousness of the Christ mind, held the desire to move the atonement forward. And that energy of desire resonated with Jayam, who also wanted to find a way to know the Christ mind and find a way to serve. And when those two energies connected, it gave rise to the book that I'm reading, The Way of Mastery. And it says, this process has occurred between my mind, capital M, mind, And yours, if you're listening to this, if you're reading the book, The Way of Mastery, if you're studying the ChristMind.info information, you would not have heard of Shanti Cristo, and you would not have heard of me, Yeshua. So please, recognize then your own power. For you have attracted this work, Yeshua, this teaching, to yourself as I have attracted you to me. In each moment, all of your relationships, in each moment of all of your relationships, whether they be with people, 
places or things, learn to pause long enough, which only takes a few seconds, and say this within yourself, quote, I am in the moment of this relationship because I have called this to myself. There is then something within me that vibrates or resonates perfectly with this other. Again, this is true whether the other is a person, a place, or a thing. The text goes on and says, True then, true change then can occur not when you recognize that you do not like the relationship you are in, whether it's of a person, a place, a thing, and therefore you take steps to get yourself out of it, but rather true change occurs when you recognize that the relationship and what is occurring within it must be the result of something within your own consciousness. Therefore, what is unlikable in that moment of relationship is merely the flowering of a seed potential or vibration that you have been holding in the depths of your own being. It is then a simple thing to seek first the kingdom, to rest in the simple knowingness and to gently inquire of the Holy Spirit to teach you, to reveal to you what you have held as a true belief that is indeed quite false. As you then see why you have been holding that belief and how it has manifested in the world of your experience, you then are quite free to choose anew. It is just at this point where so often the mind becomes fearful and says, quote, well, but at least I know this. I do not know what is unknown, close quotes. But I say unto you that there is nothing unknown. There is nothing unknown to you. For there is nothing for you until you decide to choose for it. This is why desire is the first key to the kingdom. Freedom can only come to the mind that truly assumes complete responsibility for the creation of its experience. So that, for my mind, that last sentence is worth rereading. Freedom can only come to the mind that truly assumes complete responsibility for creating its experience. So that in any moment it recognizes that the thoughts, the perceptions, and the feelings coursing through the emotional body are arising within the sovereign domain of the soul's being. They are uncaused, except again for the seed thoughts or perceptions that that mind or that soul has chosen to value for itself. Life then offers you a way out. When things don't seem to be working and your peace is missing, this is actually a sign to you that there must be some belief or perception that you are clinging to which does not work. You are free then to seek out, seek it out, to inquire, 
find it and then change it. You don't find it outside of yourself. You find it inside of yourself. You find within you the seed, thought, belief, or perception that you are clinging to which does not work. This is why so often we recommend that you learn to to devote some extra mind energy every day at the beginning of every morning to say, I'm going to pay more attention today, and at the earliest warning sign of any upset, I'm going to call a time out for myself, take that nice deep breath where I hold it at the top for two or three seconds, and then I slow the exhale down so it's at least twice as long, if not longer, than the inhale time, and I ask myself, how am I creating this tension or this negative emotion i'm turning the focus inside why because whenever i feel life isn't working out or things are going in a way i don't like and my peace is missing this is actually a sign that there must be some belief or perception within me and I'm clinging to it and I'm valuing it and I'm thinking this is right and the world of, of flow of life is wrong and it's not working. The belief, the perception, the thought that I'm clinging to doesn't work. And it's creating the tension, it's creating the upset, it's creating the negative emotion within me. And once I find that, I'm free then to seek it out, inquire into the depths of it, the origins of it, and then to change it, to choose anew. Or to pick up a worksheet process and cancel the thought, cancel the goal, cancel the dynamics of perception that my mind continually tells me this is true and this is right and I'm right and they're wrong. Cancel my need to be right and ask to be shown something else. The text goes on and says, I've often recommended to you that you cannot transcend what you first fail to embrace. Therefore, look well upon your creations and bless them. If it is the fact that your car has just broken down along the freeway and the wheels have fallen off and the motor stopped and the doors are crumbling to dust, just bless it. For that context of experience, you will take into your tomorrows. There is no moment then. There is no moment. And this is important enough that they repeat it in italics. There is no moment in which you have failed. As a sovereign master, indeed the literal embodiment of the mind of creation, you have used your freedom to create experience. This is what has always been happening. So they recommend here, again, embrace it, rest in gratitude for it, own it as completely yours, and then simply ask, do I wish to continue this, or would I like to start a new adventure? The text reminds us, as they've said so often, you will be creating new adventures eternally. When you drop the body, it's not the end of you. 
your essence, your consciousness, the adventures you create go on. You will be creating new adventures eternally. For there is no moment that creation ends. Mind, capital M, mind, or soul is the vortex, the vehicle through which creation extends itself from the field of infinite possibility into the realization of manifold particularities. Beloved friends, you are indeed as I am. I am rather enjoying my domain. I am currently unlimited by space and time. I have no longer any need whatsoever for the unique forms of experience that can come through the crystallization of what you call the body, what some of you mistakenly call yourself. You then, realizing it well or not, you then are at play in the kingdom just like a child in a sandbox. And each event that arises for you need not be judged. I have shared with you many times that it is the egoic mind that compares and contrasts. Therefore, never, and this word's in italics, never compare or contrast your experience with another person's. Yours is unique. And though the world would say, perhaps, that your experience is not as valuable because you are only worth $20,000 and somebody else is worth $400 million, therefore they have manifested more powerfully, that is simply not true. For manifestation is simply the expression that reveals where the mind has been focusing. The real power is the very mystery that anything can be manifested at all. And you are free to constantly choose anew. Cultivate, then, a very childlike attitude toward all of your experience. Learn to ponder it, to wonder about it, to look upon it like a father does to a child, like your creator, your father does to you. Behold, I have created all these things, and it is good. In your Bible, in the creation story that is told there, it is said that the Creator said something like that. So, here's what the text reads. For God looked upon all that she had created and said, Behold, it is very good. You are the creator of your creations. You are the father of your creations. You are the father of your thoughts, your attitudes, and your choices. Please look upon all these things and say, Behold, it is very good. For goodness begets goodness. Judgment begets judgment. And in this phrasing right we're using words here to talk about things that go beyond words every moment please don't get caught up with the word good what they're what they mean in this and they've talked about it so many times is not that they're judging that this is better than something else when they say this is good they're just talking about allowing accepting embracing trusting and blessing whatever it is you've already created 
not saying, this is good, I need to keep doing more of it, and that is bad and I don't want to do it anymore. So watch, watch the mental hook here where your ego wants to start judging and, and taking that word good and getting hung up on it. The phrase, behold, it is very good, doesn't mean this is better than something else. It means I allow, I accept, I trust, I bless, I embrace what I've created. And then, if I don't like how it feels, I'm free to choose anew. And that will be my creation. And as it said before, I've often recommended to you that you cannot transcend what you first failed to embrace. So think about it this way. The phrase, behold, it is very good, is the same as saying, behold, I embrace what I have created. It doesn't mean I have to like it. It doesn't mean I have to prefer it over something else. It just means I'm going to embrace it as it is so that I can choose anew or I can work with it as it is. I cannot transcend what I first fail to embrace. And judgment begets judgment. The text goes on and says, each time then that you have chosen to hold a negative thought about yourself or about anyone You have only ensured the kind of inconsistency in your mind that interprets the power of your ability to create more and more as a living, embodied master. And I said interpret, but the word is interrupt. So to read that again, it says, each time that you have chosen to hold a negative thought about yourself or about anyone you have only ensured the kind of inconsistency in your mind that interrupts the power of your ability to create more and more as a living, embodied master. This can only be because you've held deep within the mind some belief that says, well, no matter what I do, it just won't work out there is some conflicted belief, a belief in goodness and a belief in evil create a conflict that must entrap the soul. So, what we're being asked to do here is to embrace everything about our lives and our creations. Guy Finley has a line where he says, you cannot love your life at the same time, you pick out any part of it and say you don't love it. It's all or nothing. You move into this allowance. You move into the embracing of everything about your life or you're rejecting your life. You're fighting against what you've already created, what is. You cannot truly say that you embrace all of life while rejecting parts of it has said at different times you cannot make it into heaven and leave even a fingernail outside it's the same kind of thing that Guy Finley is trying to reference with his ways to describe this it's every judgment every tightness every tension every contraction every great passion for something that's better than or worse than something else however you want to phrase it creates disruption 
and it interrupts your ability to experience yourself as the embodied master creator. You are always creating. That's something they've said over and over again in this work. That's the one thing you don't have any choice about. You can't turn off the power of the creation that flows from you through your mind energy. So everything that you judge, everything that you have tightness or tension or anger or fear or grief or contraction about becomes something that you're creating pain and suffering over and that you then no longer have the ability to affect because if you're judging it, you're not embracing it and you can't transcend it, you can't change it if you won't embrace it first. So that's all I'm going to read so far today. We've got about seven minutes left. If you want to call, have a comment, have a question, 563-999-3581. We have quite a few people on the call. I have no idea if there's anybody in the chat room because I got kicked out of it, I believe, when uh, Jeannie signed on. And so um, let us know how this is sitting with you. Let us know how this is landing for you. Um, Area code 541, you're in the air. Is this Celinda? Yes, it is. How are you, Dr. Tim? And you, well. Susan? <laughs> I, well, I just want to not share... turned on, but go ahead. <laughs> okay, just one moment. Can you hear me now? Hello? Are you yes. there? Oh, we are here. Good. Perfect. I just wanted to thank Susan for what she shared because um, it really uh, sank in deep within me because I also am interested in the Tao. And uh, there's a part of me that keeps thinking things are very, very simple if I would just listen to my heart. And I um, thank her for the gentle art of blessing because I bought the book and now I can start looking at it in seriousness. It's a matter of pruning my library to what really, really focuses for me. I was wondering if you could possibly send me, Dr. Tim, that forward for the Greg Braden, um, I think it was a YouTube video or whatever that um, you and Susan were talking about. I will see if I can uh, get my hands on that. Now, um, do you and, have my... And send it and send it to you um, through an email, you're asking? Yeah, yeah. Do you have my email or should I give it to you? I'll tell you here in just a minute. I have it. Okay, perfect. Yes, I just feel like what Magda has been sharing recently and what um, Susan and I have been sharing, it's almost like we're... I feel like we're three peas in a pod or the three musketeers or something uh, um, leapfrogging on each other. And I just want to appreciate that. Also, Anne, when she contributes or anybody else, um, 
So I appreciate all of those perspectives, but especially Magda, um, Susan and I, it almost feels like one of us comes from the heart, one of us comes from our bodies, one of us comes from our brains uh, as the portal for going through to the other two uh, body, heart brains or mind brains. And I just want to share that, that how unique all of our paths are and yet how they dovetail with each other. Um, and the simplicity, I keep being drawn to simplicity. It's only a choice away. Well, I'm hoping that you're finding that for yourself, right? Rather than you're preaching it to somebody else that you're finding for yourself, that simplicity is only a choice away and that you prefer the uh, the functioning and the feeling state and the emotional state when you are choosing for simplicity. Yes. I hope that's your experience. Well, I'm marching towards it. <laughs> and I appreciate all of your support. I couldn't do it without all of you. Well, you're entirely welcome and deserving. Um, I beg to differ that you could do it without these people. You'd find others. Um, hold your, to your commitment. Hold to your intention and understand that you are every bit as powerful a creator as anyone you meet. And there is no, as this, as this work keeps telling us over and over and over again, we are all on the path together. We are all brothers and sisters. We are all equals. There is no one who is holier than or less than. So, you know, well, I was use, use Michael's regulatory you. speech. Let me just finish that sentence. Use Michael's regulatory speech and say, you know, something like, I am grateful for the support I'm getting, rather than, I couldn't do it without you. Yes, thank you. See the difference? Yes, and I was thinking in my mind at the time that basically I was thinking you, we all are vehicles for uh, Ruha, our spirit, to work through. And that was what was in my mind when I said that, but I agree with you. I could have phrased it much more accurately and um, actually. Well, and it's... Yeah, it's just that that whole thing about how we are programming ourselves with our mind energy, with those thoughts and and statements that we value. So rather than saying, I couldn't do it without you, you might choose something like, I'm very grateful for the loving support. I'm going to write that down. Thank you very much. You're entirely welcome and deserving. I will mute you so you can listen to the second half. I will remind us all that we come from love. We're made of the stuff we call love. We actually are love. Everything else is false. Welcome, Jeannie Rice. Thank you, Dr. Tim. I appreciate it. Apparently now we we have a switch in the blog talk so that we cannot both be on the uh, chat room at the same time. So. Okay. Just be advised. <laughs> I, I can't get in now that you're in. And um Okay. And so blessings. Um have a wonderful okay. pre recorded second hour. 
<laughs> Thank you. Appreciate it. So um, things got a little bit busy, and Michael is still out doing some errands, and so he asked if I could play a pre-recorded show. And so what I thought I would do, we've had several questions lately coming in uh, about the Kaboris manuscript, and I actually created a separate page on the website and called it the Kaboris Project, so you can go out there and look at the questions and the answers. So I thought that for today, since Michael's not going to be able to be here, I'm going to replay the Kaboris show from October 25th, 2019, and it was a discussion around um, the Kaboris being a valid source for this work. And so I hope you enjoy it. Thank you. People interested in the Kaboris manuscript, there are the, if you click on Kaboris manuscript, you can go to the Enlightenment, you can see the history of the Kaboris. There's pictures, there's uh, every page of the Kaboris and introduction to it. There's all kinds of information there about that manuscript. And that is, it was found on the Kabor River. And that's what the translation has been, uh, what has been done has been done out of the Kaboris. And that's the text that um, we use. So Michael has now joined us, so I'll welcome Michael. Thank you, dear heart. And uh, I just caught the tail end. I had trouble dialing in today. Uh, so I just caught the tail end of the discussion about the divorce. Uh, there's some questions about it. You've gone silent, Jeannie. You must have pushed, pushed your mute button. Well, I'm sitting here talking with my mute button on. Um, <laughs> so, no, there wasn't a question about it. I was just filling in time until you got on on the switchboard and pointing out things that are on our website that a lot of people maybe don't click and, you know, what they can find and, and uh, information that's out there for free. And so I was just pointing that out. So there's um, nobody Sweet. but me in the chat room, and there's no questions, no hands up on the switchboard. Well, let's talk about the Kaboris a little bit. And uh, there's a gentleman named Dan McDougall. Everybody called him Mr. Mac. And uh, he was an attorney in Atlanta and became interested. Actually, he was doing some work with uh, a spy agency in England and the British intelligence suggest it was a, a, a thing as an attorney for him it was a, there was a deep interest in how people can lie and really appear to believe their lies are true and then do behaviors that go flat in the face of everything they committed to and everything that they've they say but doing the exact opposite much as we're seeing you know a whole lot of that happening in the political process today so that's what got dan interested in british intelligence said well if you're going to resolve this problem here's the place to test it and if you can resolve it here then you'll resolve it in the world and so he started to work with the first century aramaic language uh, in resolving conflict with truth with prisoners, and that was Dan's interest. And they were working actually initially with a seventh-century text of um, based in the Aramaic language, and that text was incomplete. It was called the Yonan Codex. You might see some reference to that, and, and in fact, there's some conflicting information around where one person in particular who's a, a fairly well-known Aramisist was really knocking the Kaboris. But 
then he found out, and I actually ended up presenting him the Kaboris. He's like, oh, this isn't the manuscript I was talking about. He had confused the Yonan with the Kaboris. So Dan funded an expedition to go to the Middle East and find an earlier, because the 7th century text, of course, had gone through several centuries, and, uh, and it was not complete. So he found a complete Eastern canon of the New Testament uh, in a monastery on the Kaipo River in Turkey. If you go to uh, yagen.org, our website, Jenny was talking about that, you can click on the Kabors manuscript and you'll see pictures of it. There are actually pictures of every page in the manuscript. It's beautiful. And there's some pictures of when I brought it to Heartland as I was traveling and, uh, and working with uh, getting high-resolution images made of the manuscript so that we could preserve it and uh, do a deeper level of work in it. So, so Dan worked with that, and Dan and I met and discovered our mutual interest in the Aramaic language, in, this, in particular, the Aramaic teachings of Yeshua. And uh, we discovered that we had been traveling parallel roads. I had developed a thing called Lessons in Living. Actually, it's still being taught down in a school where I started it though, 35 years ago in South Florida. Yeah, uh, in um, Delray Beach at the Unity Center there. And uh, Dan was teaching a thing called emotional maturity instruction, which he had developed for the prisons. Our mutual interest, we discovered that we had been traveling similar paths, but similar but different paths, working with the Aramaic, and mine was more oriented being a nature path with the health, uh, direction and his was more oriented to the um, justice system and we married our work and the results of that we put the uh, the work together and, and developed a course called laws of living and of course that's what we're teaching in February and that's based on in particular the work of 25 translators 25 of the world's top ceramicists worked on the Kabors manuscript actually back in the 70s until the project ran out of money. The manuscript itself was put on the shelf at that point. And when I became involved, that's when we took it down off the shelf. We're looking to get high-resolution images made so that uh, the text could be preserved. And uh, so when, if you're interested in a deeper look at the Aramaic, then you might want to think about the uh, Laws of Living Intensive that we'll be doing. At, uh, it will be here in southwest Virginia, eastern Tennessee area, about, about 15, 20 minutes from Bristol, Tennessee, Virginia. It's a split city. Actually, if you drive down, if somebody drives down the main street of, uh, of the town of Bristol, uh, the center line of the road is the... Uh, the state line. And so if they weave, they're drunk and they weave, they can get tickets in two states. So, so we're on the Virginia side and then about 15 minutes up the road, there's a really beautiful retreat center uh, called Jubilee House. And we'll be doing a 16-day residential intensive, Laws of Living, at Jubilee House. And it's done in a whole, if you've done a, a, uh, some of the other intensives, it's done in a whole different way from our normal intensive work. We, uh, we do it in the Socratic method of questions. There's a, a uh, text, about 250 pages that we go through. There are essays. There are several different tools that we uh, introduce. And we're looking to understand 
And many people have this understanding of law as the rule of a superior. Kings want you to believe that when a king says go, his word is law. You've maybe even heard that from one of your parents. My word is law in this house as the law with the rule of a superior. And most of the so-called justice system works on that premise, but it's a totally false premise. That's not what law means at all in the original first century Aramaic. And our Laws of Living course is not about, well, here's a set of rules that some creator somewhere says you better obey or you're in trouble. Uh, you'll be punished or you know, chastised or what have you, rejected, excommunicated, well, whatever. But rather, the word law presents an understanding of the energy system in which we live, move, and have our being, our relationship with those energy forces, and how they work. You know, an example, that would be the law of gravity. You know, the law of gravity operates whether you like it or not. It's independent of any rule maker. It's just the way the gravity system works. You know, if you, if you fly an airplane, you don't violate the law of gravity. Well, of course, you have to violate the law of gravity, Michael, to take a machine that's heavier than air and make it fly. Well, no, actually, you don't. You create forces called propulsion that are stronger than the forces created by the law of gravity, and your airplane flies. If you violate the way it works for one second in that airplane, that airplane crashes. If you violate the way the energy field works in relationship to health for one second, then health begins to crash. If you violate the way the energy field works in regard to nutrition, and we go into nutrition deeply in this course, then the energy field begins to crash. If you violate the way that sexuality works, then your sexuality, your life will begin to you know, in each area, there are laws. And it's not about obeying some superior. It's about here's how the eternal energy forces work. And you come into conscious relationship with them, just like the engineer comes into conscious relationship with gravity. You get to fly airplanes. You get to go to space. How cool is that? But only because you understood how those eternal forces operated and you lived in harmony with those eternal forces, knowing that to violate them for one second was destruction. And, and it's the same. And, it isn't, and the destruction isn't about being punished. It's just about here's how the energy field works. And sadly, when the Aramaic language, when the, you know, it's, and it's interesting, that language in which the Kabors is written is the root language of six, at least six of the world's major religions. And there's a reason for that, and it's got nothing to do with religion. It, has a, it is a language that has a comprehension of how these eternal forces operate and how to come, come into relationship with and understand that. But the misinterpretation and the mistranslation of those words, and we go back and we listen to uh, Vladimir Lenin, he says, if you change the meaning of a culture's words, you can destroy that culture. Why would that be? Because culture is transferred among humans by and large via words. If you have different meanings in your brain cells for a particular set of words, then the words that describe accurately how these eternal forces operate, then you can never come into relationship with those eternal forces using the meanings of those words. And virtually every major key word that's important to life has been changed by the Greeks. For instance, law. 
it's, it's been made into the rule of a superior. Nothing to do with it. And, you know, when I introduce people first to the Aramaic, and it's been a while since I've shared this story on the show, so I'll share it at this moment. I, I, I tell a story about, you know, imagine that uh, you know, we're doing a, a week of workshops at a particular location, and we hear from a fellow in Russia who wants to come in and join us for the workshops. And let's imagine you are the best translator of Russian into English and English into Russian in the world. You are the best. And I know that you're coming to the workshops and that you live locally and you're going to be uh, attending the workshops. And I know you have an extra room in your house. So I communicate to you. We heard from this fellow in Russia. He only speaks Russian and he wants to come to the workshops. Would you house him and, you know, transport him and translate for him? And you say, I'd be delighted to. And over the period of the week, you and I get together, and, and he gets together, the group that's attending the workshop, we have dinner, we maybe have lunch once or twice, and it's just great. We do the uh, mind shifters and still part breathing on Saturday. We have an awesome result. He just gets this huge opening and is so delighted with it. And as you're getting ready to take him back to the airport, you know, I want to communicate to this man how deeply I regard him, and, and I ask him if you would please tell him then I think that he's really cool. And you say, sure, I'll tell him. And you turn to him in your best Russian, and you say to him, Michael thinks you've got a low body temperature. You translated my words perfectly. You didn't say anything about what I meant, but you translated my words perfectly. Oh, yes, some of those Greek translators were some of the finest in the world, but they didn't have a clue the meaning of the idioms in the Aramaic that are key to understanding the culture that lives in harmony with these laws. That is, lives in harmony with the way this energy system works, mentally, physically, emotionally, sexually, relationship, financial, every arena, there are laws for how the system works. Violate the laws, you're in trouble. There's difficulty. Not because a superior said, look at this, you broke my rules. No, no. So we distinguish all of that and build, help people to build the brain cells and engage in exercises for moving the brainwashed part of the mind out of the way, that is forgiveness, first century Aramaic forgiveness, has to do with undoing the information within us that is of a destructive nature that uh, allows us to misinterpret and misunderstand. You know, what would the guy who hears, I think he's got a low body temperature, think when you tell him that? What would he think of me? Does he think I'm, you know, who do I think I am? How do I dare tell him he's got, you know, what, what what might go on in his mind? And so we have this misinterpretation that is universal of so many key words. And so laws of living is about straightening out those definitions and providing tools for cleaning up the mind and getting back into harmony with living as truly as a human being. You know, if you go back to Yeshua, you'll notice, well, most of the churches have this really important dogma, and I think we're at about 32,000 sects of Christianity, each with a different dogma. Here's what I believe it meant. This is the dogma in order to be part of our church that you have to believe. And by the way, if you don't believe this, this eternal punisher, it's going to send you to a hot, fiery place for life. Dogma, doctrine. You'll notice that Yeshua had a different purpose. What did Yeshua say? 
He said, I come to bring you life and life more abundantly. His purpose was not to teach you some kind of religious doctrine or dogma. His purpose was to bring you an understanding through words and tools how to live as a human being. And what is a human being? And this is our whole purpose of laws of living. It's the purpose of everything we do. <clears throat> what is a human being? Well, that definition has been so distorted that it includes all kinds of crazy things, but I would offer that. <clears throat> Most of what the world believes about human beings, you know, when, when people are frail and faulty and do something, they say, well, after all, I'm only human. Well, that's all falsehood. That's all based in the same kind of misunderstanding of you've got a low body temperature. Hold a newborn child and you get to experience what human life is. When you hold that newborn child, notice that the newborn is not loving you. This is another word that's been mistranslated. We're told, oh, you're supposed to love your neighbor. Yeshua never said that. Hold the newborn. Is the newborn loving you or is the newborn love? No question about it. The newborn is love. Yeshua said, I come to bring you that life and life more abundantly. You'll notice the, the repeated references to love and the Greeks translated into, and you know, how many crazy different things do we have about love in this culture? Love is sexual athletics. Love is put your head on the chopping block so I can cut it off and abuse you and you can say, oh, look, I sacrificed for you. All kinds of insane definitions of love. When the truth is, love is the essence of human life. It is a state of being. It is what we are. And Yeshua, we could restate his words about the purpose of his life and his work. He says, I come to bring you the experience of living as love and bring that experience more abundantly. In other words, filling every gap in every moment of your life. And that's how human life works. When, when they, you, know, you hear them, the disciples saying, well, you know, you're telling us all this stuff. What's most important in all this stuff you're teaching us? What's number one? Did he say love your neighbor? No. The Greeks tell us he said love your neighbor. And the Greeks went off in a direction. And now in the name of loving our neighbors, what do we have? Religious wars, left, right, center, up, down, rejection, murder, I mean mayhem. What he said was not love your neighbor, love the creator as yourself. In Aramaic, first century language, properly translated, he said maintain rachma, which is a filter in the frontal lobes of the brain. The Greeks mistranslated that as love the same way as our translator who told our Russian friend he has a low body temperature. As he translated my words, I think you're really cool, meaning I think you're the cat's meow, you're awesome, you're wonderful. But now it's become a low body temperature kind of thing. It's just totally distorted. And so what Yeshua said is maintain this condition of Rachma which in Aramaic is a gateway in the frontal lobes of the brain that is the entryway for human life into human form and keeps the human mind on track with its true nature, which is love. If hostility or fear rears its head and you do behaviors based in hostility or fear, you have violated the laws for living a human life. 
Now, that doesn't mean that some superior is peeved at you because you didn't do what you were told to do. It just means that you've stepped out of harmony with, which, with that which causes a human life to go forward and be maintained. And if you do that, you can't have life more abundantly. So it's, and it, you know, Grady made the point, I think it was Grady made the point on yesterday's show about just how this work is so imminent. It's here. It's not about some afterlife. It's not about some esoteric something. It's the truth of how we live today in relationship with each other as human beings and stop the lie that we're, when we're in hostility and fear and puking on somebody else, when we're being pissy with somebody else, that it's their fault and they deserved it and stop the conversations about them and start having a conversation about yourself and clean up your own mind because if you don't, you throw away through hostility and fear your own human life and your own human physiology will start to fall apart. And the result of that is death. What was that statement? The wages of sin is death. Now, what did the Greeks translate that one as? Oh, if you do something that this superior doesn't like, then you are going to die. The creator is going to get you. As opposed to the imminent understanding, the understanding that makes it imminent in life, that if I engage in energies that are off the mark, the word sin in Aramaic is an archery term, and it simply means you miss the bullseye. So if I engage in energy that's off the mark, the result is if I continue to do that, I will die. Disintegrative energies into my tissue structure each time I quote unquote sin, each time I engage in hate and fear and rage and guilt and grief and and gossip and slander and vengeance and abuse of my neighbor or myself or my spouse or my children or my parents. Instead of maintaining rachma, and understanding the imminent domain of the law. Ah, when I keep this gateway open, I stay in touch with, I live in relationship with the truth of who I am. I live as love, as I am. And when hostility or fear comes up in me, I, and, and I recognize that it's a generational pattern that tends to run my life. In fact, it's mostly a power person dynamic that runs my life. Then I apply forgiveness. Nothing somebody else off the hook for what they need or because I'm in violation of that I live, move, and have my being in. But as I remove the energy that violates, then healing occurs and a whole different game starts to happen. And so that's what we're here to understand in the, uh, the Kaboris, or from the Kaboris and from the first century teachings of the man named Yeshua. So I hope that gives you a picture of uh, a little bit about the manuscript and, and what the core of it's about. And our objective, of course, with this work is to enter into the practice of functioning as conscious, active presence of love 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, and to be able to hold that space for each other whenever any of us has fallen out of harmony. And, of course, you go back and, you know, the Greeks will beat you up over this one. And say, well, we've all fallen short. Yeah, we've all fallen out of harmony with how the energy system works. 
Does that mean somebody deserves to be condemned? No. But rather that we're in the space of holding to active love to assist in the support and the repair of whatever's going on in the energy system that might be off base. And so, you know, the whole objective of an intensive, uh, we've had, you know, several people from uh, last summer's intensives calling into the show on occasion. And the support that's there and developing for each other as those layers that perhaps, you know, haven't been looked at in a hundred generations in any of our bloodlines. As each individual says, okay, wow, I start to look back. Jeannie and I uh, went to uh, the movies last night and and saw the film uh, Judy. um, Oh, my brain's gone on her name. Um, Garland. Judy, Judy Garland. Judy Garland. Uh, awesome film. Uh, both of us ended up in tears toward the end of it to to watch how this young girl from Michigan somewhere was discovered and uh, how the uh, movie studios uh, executives basically manipulated her into becoming a child star. She starred in, you know, true story, she starred in uh, um, The Wizard of Oz as Dorothy and, you know, they forced her to become, as a young child, drug dependent because they were afraid she'd put on weight partway through the film and she couldn't do that. So, you know, there's one scene where she's sitting with Mickey Rooney there. She's got a crush on Mickey Rooney and he's eating a hamburger. They're in a restaurant and she has a matron who kind of looks over her, you know, takes care of her for the studio and she wants a bite of his hamburger and the matron comes over and says, no, you don't. You can't get fat while you're doing this movie and hands her an an amphetamine pill. This is your lunch and hooks her on pills and the rest of her life is drug addiction and the challenges she goes through and at the age of 47 was dead of an overdose. Abuse that started in early childhood, the lack of rock and the lack of love and the pursuit of money. How bizarre. It's very touching and, and, and very distinctly shows how when she went through, I think, five different marriages and each time she was married, the the power person shows how the studio executive just degrades her and drags her through the dirt to force her to do his bidding in this movie. And the power person, you see it being instilled in her mind. You know, here's somebody who's got more control over her life than she does. He's always threatening her with taking away her her movie, you know, life that's going to be her future that will be so wonderful for her ends up being a tragedy. And what does she do in her marriages when the stress is up? She turns to the same kind of abuse that was done to her and ended up at 47 dead from a drug overdose. Bizarre. And... How do we repair a life like that? Well, you step in, and piece by piece by piece, you undo the power person dynamics. You live in a space where you're willing to be responsible for those dynamics. You're willing to be supported in healing them. You're willing to confront them, although it's not Dr. Feelgood. You're willing to step out of the uh, defense mechanism that the power person used, which is usually some form of attack or what have you or degradation that's used, vicious energy towards others, especially those who are closest. 
you have to own those and choose to begin to forgive, to remove those energetic patterns, to step into still another place in the whole body of work. The reason for this show is to be here of support for moving through those things. And so we're here to hold the space and uh, uh, appreciate each of you who's there to really truly be the space for the process that each of us are going through as this healing unfolds. And speaking of healing, I, I got a call from a friend of mine last night, uh, and uh, he was sharing that he just had a diagnosis uh, from his medical doctor that uh, left him in a pretty traumatic place. His name is Steve. And I'll just ask everybody to uh, you know, just tap into Steve's energy and everyone here participating in tensors and such as developing intuition so we can stand in that space of active present love and just see Steve's chest and lungs being radiated with the active presence of love that um, whatever anomalies are going on in tissue and they don't they don't have it down to an exact diagnosis they've given them two or three scary things that might be going on and uh, he's a deep friend of this work has done this work for several decades used to be a participant in, in our workshops in Florida way back in the early days of developing this work so Steve we cherish you we honor you we hold the space for you and especially for, you know, if there's any kind of mental, emotional component involved with what's happening in your physiology, we hold that that can uh, be forgiven, be removed, and totally reorganize your energy system to a state of awesome, perfect, vital health. Steve's just this really this awesome man that's uh, been around in my world for the last uh, 30, oh, almost 40 years. And uh, so we care for him deeply and and see if we hold this for, for your healing. And anyone else that's facing financial relationship, emotional, physical challenges, we hold the space for healing. And it is that awesome presence of, of true active love that when it comes forward, enters into the space of physiology where distortions have occurred or into emotions where distortions have occurred or into the mind where distortions have occurred and reorganizes that structure into health and wholeness. And the whole bottom line of healing, you know, having done this work for almost 50 years, I can think back to a point maybe, oh, I don't know, 20, 25 years ago when I started really questioning what what is healing? What What is it that makes the difference? What On the occasions where I've seen people who have head issues that are really, in, in the normal sense of the world, absolutely unresolvable. And as I started to question and ask to be shown, what what is it? What creates that change in energy? What became clear to me as I look back over the previous couple of decades of doing this work is each time I saw someone making that kind of monumental shift, two things had occurred. Something that was in hiding within the mind, something that someone had been in denial of. And remember our definition of denial is when I think or speak as though something outside of me is the cause of something inside of me. So the bottom line of healing is that 
when one can step out of denial and allow. You know, if there's pain in your structure, you're in denial. It's just the way it is. And so are you willing to step into a space of opening that part of your mind? And it might mean facing some pretty deep power person dynamics. Are you willing to open that and to let that energy come forward in the presence of love? And, and you can't do that without the willingness to look at what's there. You know, oftentimes people will feel attacked if they're shown where their deficiency or their weakness is. When, in fact, the idea is to just look at the truth and to be able to see truly what's going on and have access to that deeper hidden part of the mind. There's no idea of attack and saying, gee, did you notice that you did thus and so? Now, the average person, when you show them where the blockage of truth is, they'll go into attack mode and puke on you for how dare you say such a thing. That's not what it's about. It's about you have to be able to look at what your energy field is doing and see the truth of it in order to bring correction. So what became very clear to me is that when someone was able to bring something out of hiding in their, in their minds, which is their body literally, and bring that energy forward in the presence of active love, and I mean that love has to be conscious, active, and present. Human life has to be in conscious awareness and operating in that space. And when that love is present, and we willingly step into looking at the dis-ease energy, instead of feeling attacked when we're shown what where our blockage is, to go, oh, is it possible that I'm blocking in that? Well, gee, you know, 87 different times with 42 different people, I've been all pissy and, and, and moany with other people and blaming them when, I, when that happens. So maybe I need to look at that. And when I look at that and I let the raw core energy come to the surface in the presence of love, then healing occurs. And there is no tool that I know of on planet Earth besides first century Aramaic forgiveness that empowers people to consistently, persistently do that. Yes, there are accidental ways that people stumble across it and they get a piece of healing and not understanding the principle involved, they often go off in some direction that doesn't have anything to do with the truth. But the bottom line truth of it is if there's a hidden or dissociated part of the mind that I'm willing to receive feedback about and willing to allow it to come forward in the presence of active love, then healing occurs. And it doesn't matter where the energy is in tissue. If it's anywhere in your tissue structure and there's a disease going on, that disease can heal absolutely instantly on the spot. I've seen it happen over and over and over and over again. Yes, right up to and including cancers. But the unwillingness to live, love truth and let the truth come forward and look at it locks the disintegrative energy wherever it is in tissue. And that's the part of your structure that will keep nagging even pain because there's an energy there that doesn't belong. Willingness allows it to come forward in the presence of love. Dissolution Forgiveness is the dissolution of that energy. And so that's what we're here to support. That's what we're here to understand. That's a basic bottom line of healing from the first century Aramaic language. 
And you go back to Yeshua 2,000 years ago, and this man was a physicist. This man was a psychologist. This man was not a theologian. He was a geneticist. He understood how the energy system worked. When they said the wages of sin is death, there was no threat in that whatsoever. It's just, here's how it works. You put an energy in that doesn't belong, and the tissue that it's in begins to fall apart. You get enough of that happening, and you die Forgiveness is to drop into that part of your own mind and remove the part that holds that hostility or fear, rage, guilt, grief, whatever it happens to be. And so that's the bottom line of healing, and that's what we're here to support, and we're delighted that you're here to be part of the process. And, of course, the idea of the show is to be here as a space to open questions and to empower people by tapping into that first century Aramaic information and understanding. And, uh, you know, not many people are going to spend, uh, for me, the Aramaic specifically, I started working with that about 40 years ago. I was engaged in this work for approximately 10 years before that. But when I came into contact with the Aramaic, that was huge opening in the next step. And so I basically spent 40 years full-time understanding the healing aspect, not the philosophical, not the theological, but the healing aspect of that first century teaching of this man named Yeshua. And we're here to support you. You're probably not going to spend 40 years of your life full-time putting that all together. And so we're here to offer the best answers that we've got and support the process and, and in this work, we define processing as the ability to keep love conscious, active, and present when something less than love comes up, to allow that which is less than love to come forward, and to stop the focus on everybody else as the problem in your life and start to own that, here I am. I'm the one's in pain. I have a thought disorder, and when I bring that thought disorder, when I stop you know, defending and I bring that thought disorder forward in the presence of active love, it dissolves, and I am healed. It's just the way it goes. That's the healing core and the healing power of this man that was called the great physician. So this work is opposed to being about treatment, and you know, treatment can be wonderful. No question about it. There have been some wonderful treatments that have been discovered for symptoms. But in the last analysis, treatment isn't healing. I think any medical professional that offers treatment without offering healing at the same time, without having educated themselves as healers and offering support for healing to people, I think that's criminal. To hold oneself out as a healer, as one who heals others and offers treatment only, but no deeper insight into the dynamics of what are going on within the structure of the individual and cleaning that up. I think it's just really, it's a sham, and it has created so much suffering in our world today. And it's time to put an end to suffering. If you're acquainted with Yeshua and what he taught, and you actually engage in what he taught, not believe in what he taught, but engage it, your suffering's over. And or you'll come in touch with layers of suffering that you need to clean up, and as you clean it up, as you do your work, those layers of suffering just disappear and dissipate. That's the whole bottom line. And what's left when you do that process? Being, hold the newborn, that's what's left. 
literally the awesome active presence of love. It's who we are. It's what we're designed for. And so that's what we're here to support and be part of. And uh, if you're out there and you have any questions for us, if you're in, on one of those stations where we can't see you, our call-in number is 563-999-3581, 563-999-3581. If you're in the chat room and you have a question, you want to dial that number, you'll be listening to the show. And then if you push one, a little hand will go up in the uh, control panel, and Jeannie will know you want to talk to us, and we'll have a conversation. So, Jeannie, do we have anything happening in the chat room or anybody in the control room with a uh, question for us? There's just one other person listening in the chat room, but they're not uh, on there where they can talk. And there's a lot of people on the switchboard, but nobody has their hand up. So we have 18 minutes. If someone presses one, we've got plenty of time for a conversation. So how can we support you? What's on your mind? If I had been in your hometown... If I were there today and just walked down off of a platform after saying what I just said, you know, I mean, your local university or your local church, or your local library, or your local prison or whatever, and I just shared what I shared, and I walked down off the platform, I've completed my presentation, I know that virtually everybody who's listening on the switchboard would walk over to me and say, well, Michael, what about, and that's what this space is for, those what about questions. Now, if, you know, you're listening and you go, well, my voice is a little shaky. I don't know if I want to, well, can you make it okay for your voice, voice to be shaky? You've got a hand up. And go ahead, push one and ask the question. Up. Go for it. All right, let's go for it. All right. They both hit at the same time. I think one is Tim and one is Susan, so I'm going to put them both on. Six one zero on there. Well, hey, I was thinking about... I was thinking about texting you folks this morning to see how your eye is doing, Tim, so I'm glad you're here. How are you doing? Well, a little better. Um, hi, Sue. It's you moving in the right direction? You at the same time I did. Uh-huh. I know. That's weird. We didn't Great minds think alike, right? <laughs> right. Great minds think alike. He's in a different room. Yeah. Aha. What I was what I wanted to ask for it, Michael Jim. is how do we know that the how do we know that the Kaburis manuscript isn't translated from a Greek translation? How do we know that it was directly written well, by an eyewitness or somebody else, not from the Greek? Well, the the imprimatur, and it'd be kind of like you know you being a lawyer, a notary today would certify. How do I know that? You know, this is an actual court document. Well, there's a notary who certified it. Now, do notaries lie? Yeah, it's been known to happen. But generally speaking, if you have a notarized document, you can trust it, right? So there's right. an imprimatur, a page at the beginning of the manuscript that would be the equivalent of the notary's page uh, of a bishop of the Church of Nineveh, which would have been one of the largest churches in the that area in the uh, uh, Turkey it was, the manuscript was found in the Kaibor River in Turkey. So that would have been one of the largest churches around 1000 AD. And that imprimatur, which is, and we've had the manuscript carbon dated twice now, actually, at the University of Arizona, which is kind of a primo carbon dating facility. And they tell us that the manuscript is uh, 
AD 1000 plus or minus 50 years. And the imprimatur says that it's a copy of a 164 AD text. So that makes it a, a copy of the earliest known first century manuscript of the Aramaic. So that's our verification, so and, or at least the, the imprimatur. That's that's the, the notary. And then you just take it and you put it to work. Does it work? And if it works, then I think we've got pretty good verification that it's accurate. Um, how do we know that the one that it was copied from wasn't uh, a translation from the Greek? How do we know that was well, also I, an Aramaic? Does well, the imprimatur say that? Well, I, I no, the imprimatur doesn't say, and this wasn't copied in 164 AD or from a 164 AD text. It was, it no, it does not say that. But the, here's how we know: we look at the Greek translations that are so silly and off the wall and ridiculous that are not in the Kavur's manuscript. So let's say, for instance, um, uh, let's go to uh, let's let me get my brain to some of the the mistranslations the Greek put into. Well, let's let's take this one of love your neighbor. The Greeks say love your neighbor. The the Kabur's manuscript doesn't say love your neighbor. It says have rockman for your neighbor. And rockman oh. is filter in the frontal lobes of the brain it has nothing to do. So there are several places where the um, the Greek mistranslations simply don't appear. And that would be our next okay. step in verifying is this a copy of a Greek text? And no, it's not. Okay. Yes, I know there are people out there saying, oh, yes, the Peshitta was just a copy of the Greek. But the mistakes that don't appear, for me, uh, come to a standard. And, and it's interesting, you know, Dan McDougall that I spoke about earlier was an attorney. And in doing the translation work, he directed the translation with these 25 uh, translators. And he used the rules of evidence as developed for a courtroom to determine what gets into the translation as to whether or not it's accurate. And the mistranslations that the Greeks put in there just don't exist in the, uh, in the Kaburis. Okay. That makes sense. What did you want to ask Sue? Oh, I like this question that you asked him. That's been on my mind too, but I just didn't think it was answerable. So I appreciate your answer, Michael. Tim's sister has been a, a sort of a, an experiential Aramaic scholar for years. In fact, she went to one oh, of really? your early worksheet workshops. Her name is is now Rahmane Myers. She calls herself Rahmane, uh-huh. but she right. might have been Claudia. Obviously, Claudia from the Aramaic. Beckin. Yeah. Right. right. Well, I've been Sweet. talking. Well, to tell her, her I said hello. This. I will. She um, she gets pretty hot under the collar about this whole thing. She says a great deal of precious material was suppressed because of institutional preferences and patriarchal mind stuff. And yeah. she said George Lamsa. She's and, right. Uh, uh, yeah, you didn't want to say it, but she she just said for me. I don't concern myself with the scholarly picking apart of this and that. What I do is just what you do, Michael. I apply it. And if it fits and helps me grow and helps me heal, this 
is what I'll use. And it's, it's the Aramaic every time. And yet it's very interesting. I've had talks with my daughter who is a traditional Episcopal priest, and she says, no, no, the Koine Greek was the first because uh, Aramaic was not a written language, but it had the same alphabet as Hebrew. So it makes me think, why then was it not written? If there was a written alphabet, it must have been <laughs> if written. If there was an alphabet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, so, and, you know, you can go back even in the Greek translations. There's one particular place where the final words on the cross that Yeshua speaks and, and what the Greek translators say in, in that passage is, and we've left this in the original Aramaic. Aramaic was a written language. There's just no question and no doubt whatsoever. Yeah. But, you know, the Greek scholars in their ivory towers, and, you, you know, just take a look around the country and how many Greek scholars sit in their ivory towers making their, you know, 80, 100, 200, $500,000 a year, whatever they're doing from their scholarship. What happens to that whole system if one day they all wake up and say, you know something? It wasn't Greek to start with. It was Aramaic. And therefore, I know know nothing, and I have to start over. And now my whole financial structure collapses. How much blockage of truth do you suppose that induces into the conversation? Oh, of course. So it's just, of course, it's like you know, it's silly. But and you you mentioned Lamsa and and Rachmane's conversation about Lamsa. You know, he worked at Unity Village at the time when he was doing his translation work, and this was a point where you know the good Christian folks were literally threatening to string him up to kill him. Oh my God. And mm-hmm. I understand that he said that in his translation, he made approximately 1,600 changes out of what he said should have been 10,000 in translating wow. and bringing it back to accuracy from the Greek to the Aramaic. And wow. he made those changes because the others, he was afraid they would literally kill him. Oh my so, God. You know, there's there's uh, quite a bit of uh, of viciousness and violence in the mind of uh, the so-called theologian that that is challenged with here's what the man said in Aramaic, and then mm. here's what the Greek translations are. Yeshua did mm. not think in, in Greek. He did not speak in Greek. And, you know, mm. as my simple example of, you know, you've got a low body temperature. I mean, just take something as simple as that and multiply yeah. that by a thousand instances where the Aramaic, uh, the Aramaic is a very, it's a small language. There aren't a lot of words in Aramaic. And so yeah. there are multiple meanings and there are deeply meaningful um passages that are totally and completely idiomatic and you can be the best translator in the world and you can't translate Mm. an idiom you've just got to know what the idiom means right so right well yeah for me the the final is uh go ahead you know you go ahead here for you the final is no I, I no, I was just going to agree with Rothmane that you know, it's it's not about belief; it's about if you apply it, does it work? There's the the ultimate yeah. verification. 
if you apply well, the Greek, is. love your neighbor. Well, look at how many people are out mm-hmm. there slaughtering each other in the name of Christ. I know. You know, I come to bring Absolutely. you the love of my master Christ. If you won't accept it, I'll kill you. Excuse me. Something's right. wrong with that translation. I know it. <laughs> something's oh, off the wall. I know it. It's so wall. disturbing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, Something one thing she did say. Really? Uh, yeah. One thing she did say is mm-hmm. 80% of what Christians have in our culture from the Greek is okay. And now maybe that's, I was surprised it was so much, considering what you said about Lamsa and the thousands more uh, corrections he would have made. She said 80%, I mean, we can limp along, and we are limping along. We're doing terribly in some departments, but she said, this is the way it's going to be. But for her, she is a, she she is actually a, her, Tim's and her mother are, is, was Jewish, and so she has studied Judaism. And at her mother's funeral, she actually said the Lord's Prayer in Aramaic and the, uh, or Hebrew. What was it, Tim? Was it Aramaic or Hebrew? I think it was Aramaic. Yeah. Um, anyway, she's, she's one of the unity people, uh, you know, just trying to find the truth in any tradition, but mainly focused on Christianity because that's how she was reared more or less and her parents who were not practicing either way particularly and I'm sort of going off here but um, and Aramaic predated Hebrew Hebrew as Arabic is a daughter Hmm. language of Aramaic wow they're offspring languages both Arabic and Hebrew in fact, oh, I, I can remember Dan, Dan uh, way back, this goes back 50 years ago, Dan went into and taught uh, a piece of the emotional maturity instruction in a synagogue in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And the, um, the uh, rabbi of the synagogue afterward just lavished praise on him and said, thank you for teaching us how to understand our language again. Oh, how gorgeous. I was introduced to a a rabbi in South Florida, got a phone call that came in last night from the fellow who introduced me. This goes back about 15 years ago. And, um, you know, he, he was sharing, he's a congregant of this rabbi, gentleman who introduced us and he shared this is just so on target with what we are working with and and he introduced us and when i met him and uh said well you know our work goes back and we're working with the aramaic i mean he literally this guy's about six six i was sitting at his kitchen table and i never had a schnuzzle before but but this guy's about six six when i said i was working with the aramaic he's like well all of our wisdom keepers in the judaic tradition were aramaic and he got up from his seat and he came over and put his arms there so let me give you a schnuzzle he gave me this big hug and he's uh-huh. like yes please come and speak at our synagogue Mm. Wow. It's all Aramaic. It, it isn't Greek. Wow, just, that's so exciting. That's isn't. so exciting. Mm. Well, it's, um, she, it's been very fun to talk to her because she has been pushing our reading and informing ourselves about Aramaic for years and years and years and kept running up against stone walls, particularly with Tim's... Um, 
after Tim's father died, his mother remarried a wonderful Christian man who was very open-minded too, but he used to argue against her, her arguments for the Aramaic being the real thing. And he said things like, yes, the Aramaic is an interesting language. It hasn't got much vocabulary, so you could put a number of meanings on any one word and you can make it pretty much say what you want. And so we're not going to do that. And that was, Tim, that was Bob Burge. And so that was the end of we'll go to, all that. We'll go to the, Greek, we'll go to the Greek where we've already established what those meanings are going to be in advance. Right. <laughs> I know. Oh, Rather I, than, he didn't even, okay. Hmm. Rather than saying, ah, so clearly with it being a small language and multiple meanings, which is true, and many idioms, which is true, rather than, well, then we're going to do an intensive scrutiny so that we can establish what those words actually meant in the first century. And that's what Dan did with 25 translators. I mean, he was paying 25 different of the world's top aramesis, and he would send a passage out to all 25 of them, get the translations back, and if they weren't accurate, or pardon me, if they weren't consistent, he'd send it back out and say, something wrong here, we, we need to do more work on this. And then when when Amazing. 25 translators all agreed and said, this is it, then we, it still wasn't considered that the translation was accurate. The next step was, in order to verify it, was, and this was the part that I played in it, I don't speak, read, or write the Aramaic language. As the director of the, the Kabbalah's Foundation, I'm not allowed to. And the, uh, what, what happened is we take what the translator said then and bring it into the laboratory of the classroom, you know, like an intensive. You, know, you came to a laboratory mm-hmm. when you guys came to mm-hmm. that intensive this summer. And does it work? Once we had the consistency of the 25 translators and then it worked, we said, okay, now we've got something that is valid. Wow. How as, far as along are to, you? You know, there's not really a way. I don't have a way that I can quantify um, how much of the translation has been done or not been done. It's really going to take having the funding and starting the translation work up again and gathering a team that's capable of, uh, of taking it to the next level to really establish that and see where it needs to go. And mm-hmm. so, and, and of course, we don't know what we don't know yet from the Aramaic, yeah. but what we do right. know certainly opens a space for monumental healing. And so we know we've got a significant amount of it accurately understood. And it'll be nice when we get it heading off to the next level when we've got the funding. To and do a really basically very important part, the important part about healing is it. I mean, isn't that pretty much it? We'd love to have other stuff, but if we're applying this, we could do a heck of a lot of healing in the world. Everything else is handled. Absolutely. Yeah. That takes care of it all. That's the core of it. Oh, boy. I'm in agreement, and we're down to the last few seconds, so I'm going to say thank you, Tim, for opening with that question, and uh, Susan, for continuing the conversation. Tell Rachmane I said hello. I'd love to chat with her. love to have her come on the show, and let's have a conversation. In the meantime, everybody, have the best year yet of your eternal life. It is an awesome gift to give the world.